You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Greg Dickerson, an exceptional guest, real estate entrepreneur out of Charlottesville, region of Virginia, successful entrepreneur, focused on land development and all sorts of fun. How are you, Greg? Doing great. How are you today, Adam? Thanks so much for being with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, yeah. It's a pleasure to meet you, and glad to be here. Thanks a lot. Uh, I would like to start with the beginning as a developer um, in, in, in the market more than, I think, 30 years now. What was the beginning for you and how you did the transition from the multifamily and regular real estate to commercial and basically focus on land development? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur, started in 1997, and I uh, started a little remodeling handyman company, and uh, built that from basically zero. Uh, our first year, we did 250,000 in sales. By the seventh year, we were doing 30 million. We were one of the largest builder developers in our area, sold the company. Uh, I started 12 other companies along the way during that time, built them up, sold them off. And uh, what I would do is I would build those businesses and to generate cash flow to invest in other assets. So, uh, I was a builder by nature, starting as a remodeling contractor, then a single family home builder. Uh, and then through that business, I learned land development, got into developing land, uh, either by tearing buildings down and developing or, you know, even taking tracts of land and, you know, doing subdivisions, mixed use subdivisions, things like that. Uh, then I started building commercial buildings more uh, at first uh, as a fee, as part of the business. Then I started doing my own projects. And that's kind of how I did it. So along the way, I was doing work for other people as a merchant, you know, builder for other people as a business. And then I was learning what they were doing. And I started doing my own project. So that's kind of how it all happened by working for other people. I learned what they were doing, asking questions, being curious, educating myself. I'm not formally educated. I didn't go to college. I went in the Navy right out of high school. And after the Navy, uh, I worked a little bit, you know, a couple of different jobs in restaurants and construction. I uh, got some really good business training in restaurants. Uh, I did retail in the Navy, so I had a little bit of business training there. And I applied, you know, those lessons to the building business and uh, learned it all, you know, the hard way. And a lot of it was just right place, right time. So, you know, I got into the business in 1997 when everything was on the upswing, right? We had a big real estate boom, big construction boom. So it was kind of easy in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, I had to educate myself on, you know, the opportunities on how to do the business, what other people were doing to make money mm -hmm. and by working for and learning from other developers. So I had a lot of developers coming into the area that I was working in mm -hmm. uh, that were buying, you know, uh, investment properties, rental properties, you know, short term rentals. But these were multimillion dollar houses that I was building for short term rentals. And um, these a lot of these people were sophisticated business uh, people or investors from other areas. A lot of them made a lot of money in the dot-com bubble, 2000, 2001, and they cashed out, were coming down and spending money on beach houses. Uh, I was on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Uh, and then after the dot-com you know, bust, we saw a, little, a lot of people selling their houses, you know, <laughs> trying to recoup losses you know, from the market. So uh, really interesting you know, experience that, that I have in the background that I built through you know, building all these different companies, working for a lot of you know, different types of people, doing all kinds of different things. The key was, I would ask really good questions. I was curious and I was like a sponge. I was soaking up knowledge from all of these different people that I was working for uh, to learn what they were doing to make their money and what they were doing in their businesses. So not only did I learn the development business and investing business, 
But, you know, I had people that were, you know, vice presidents of, you know, major banks. I had people that were real estate developers. I had people that, you know, all kinds of different businesses and companies that, you know, they had started and they were building up or working for that were making a lot of money and coming down and investing in my area. So it was a really good experience, you know, and a lot of different inputs um, that, that I received along the way. But the key was I was curious. I asked good mm-hmm. questions and I educated myself. I was a seeker of wisdom, still am uh, my entire life. And that's what really made the difference for me. Uh, basically, you, you, when you started, you, you was not the biggest fish in the room. You're always trying to be the smallest fish to get more knowledge on your preferred uh, uh, sector or strategy. But yeah, I was always was a seeker of wisdom, seeker of knowledge. And, you know, my first deal was a simple little lot flip. A friend of mine who was a realtor, you know, brought it to me and he said, look, you know, I found this lot we can buy it for. I don't even remember what it was. You know, we can buy it for a hundred thousand. We can sell it for, you know, 150. And uh, I'm like, you know, can we do that? He's like, sure. He's like, you know, we can buy this. My dad's got a client that'll buy it from us and I'll take care of everything. You put up the money and we'll split the profits. I said, okay. So I put up the money. We did it 30 days later. You know, we split the profits. I don't know. We made 15, 20 grand a piece and off of a hundred thousand in 30 days. And I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. And, you know, that's what kind of opened my mind to, you know, land flipping and flipping properties and, you know, things like that. And like I said, I was working for other people that were building spec houses, investment houses, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, what I learned was you want to control the dirt and, you know, spec house development, real estate development, a lot of times you're extracting value out of the land through the vertical. So that's really what I learned when that started clicking. So I went on after that, uh, you know, first experience, my main focus was to tie up land and to find good pieces of land and then maximize the value, maximize the density, and then bring everything else to the, to the, you know, table to fulfill that vision. So uh, it's a lot of fun. 100%. Um, back to this uh, stage and, and now, uh, uh, the land development has different stages from planning, land acquisition, design, construction, and, and actually financing. What was the beginning for you? It's, you started only to do a pre-development stage when you sell the, buy the land, split it to lots, or you did all of the whole cycle from pre-development to the end on the beginning. I know that you're already doing this for a long time, but uh, how you started on, on, on pre-development basically? So it starts with the vision. So, you know, what's the highest and best use of the property? That's where it all starts. Hmm. And sometimes what you start with isn't what you end up with. And I'll give you an example. So one of the projects that I did was a uh, uh, cheerleading trampoline gymnastics school. Hmm. So, you know, I was a sucker for, you know, philanthropic activities and, you know, kids in the community. And a lot of the businesses I got into, somebody else was struggling in a business and they would come to me because I had a reputation and people knew that, you know, that I knew how to do different things and I would help them in their business. So this guy came to me, he was about to go out of business. He had like 70 kids in his program. It was a very small area. And I put my kids through the gymnastic programs through the county in the area. And they were very low quality. And this guy was an Olymp junior Olympic level coach. And the kids loved him and he was getting good results. And, you know, he only had about 70 of them. He was operating in a small little warehouse. So uh, I came in, bought the business from him, paid off all his debts. And I built the program from 70 kids to 300 in, a, in like a six month period. Actually, it might have been about a three or four month period. And this is a very small demographic. They were only 30,000 year round people in this community. So very small year round community. And then in the summer, there's a million people a week, you know, that go through the area. It's a big tourist destination, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So I take this program over, built it up. I I leased out a 10,000 square foot space. 
uh, you know, air conditioned it. So we turned it into a really nice gym for kids. So it was gymnastics, competitive trampoline and cheerleading, competitive cheerleading, you know, really great program still exists down there today. This was, I don't know, 2003, I think when I did this 2002. Okay. So, um, I went and uh, found a piece of property. We kept our horses on this property uh, and in front of it on the highway where there was frontage, there was a, I don't know, three or four acre piece of property that uh, I approached the owners and asked them if they wanted to sell it because I wanted to build a bigger gym for this program. So I bought the land for that reason to build a 16,000 square foot gym. So I bought it and I built this metal building. And during that time, um, I took the gymnastics program, that, that thing, nonprofit, and I donated everything to the nonprofit. And they started looking at the cost of the new facility versus where they were. And they decided they would rather just stay where they are. And I said, okay, now I've got this land with this 16,000 square foot building. What am I going to do with it? So lo and behold, there was a uh, Harley Davidson dealer that uh, was looking in the area for a property. He approached me. And uh, so I sold him the building as is built it out for him as a general contractor. And it became, you know, it's, it's the biggest Harley Davidson dealership and uh, retail center down there in the area. They won a bunch of awards for the design and everything. So, you know, what you start with isn't what you always end up with. And, you know, the key was finding the right property in the right area, maximized it. You know, uh, I donated a significant amount of money to this program that property that I ended up, that I was building initially for that program ended up returning twice as much as I donated to the program uh, at the end of the day from profit. So it's really amazing how things can work out sometimes, but that was one of my first, you know, commercial deals like that. It was really interesting. 100%, 100%. Uh, I was talking to you before the show about the recession and the interest rate. So I think one of the main thing or main risk on land development and or development in, in general is time. So what is your risk mitigation strategy with, for, uh, in different uh, market turns, especially with the product value, materials, interest rate, maybe economy? So what was your strategy back then and now uh, to yeah, so mitigate the risk? You, you didn't go through the cycle, and a lot of people watching this may have not been through these cycles. Yeah. So interest rates, okay, interest rates are rising now. They're twice as much as they were you know, two months ago. Well, I was still paying twice as much back then than what they are right now. So back then for me, you know, nine, 10% was a typical interest rate for new development for construction on construction loans. And then a good, you know, longer term debt was in the five, six, 7% range. That was all in the run up uh, to 0405. And then rates really started dropping. But the cheapest rates that I ever took advantage of, you know, I probably did some interest only LIBOR loans, you know, uh, and some interest only commercial bridge debt at probably in the fours, high three, low fours. That's the mm. cheapest interest back then mm. that we could get. And uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's all relative, right? So if the rates are higher, then your cost basis is going to be lower. So you, you, at the end of the day, the bottom line, the deal has to work. So interest rates, as they rise, you know, you will see cap rates, you know, increase as well. You'll see the values of properties come down as interest rates drop. We saw cap rates compress, value of properties go up. So it's always inversely related. We're seeing it in the residential market. You'll definitely see it in the commercial market. The other thing that changes with rising interest rates in a recessionary environment are, you know, credit uh, risks and credit controls. So you're lending, uh, you know, your, your, uh, funds availability and you know the requirements for loans and things like that will change it'll get more difficult to borrow money uh, there'll be more requirements you know lower loan to values a lot of times as recession you know plays out 
uh, back in 2009, when banks were failing and collapsing, you know, a lot of people couldn't borrow any money because banks couldn't lend any money. Mm. The one thing that was a big risk back then that we none of us really knew were what banks, you know, when banks got in trouble, you know, they just started calling your loans. So we had several development loans. We were fine. We were servicing the debt. Um, you know, we had cash flow, we had assets. And then all of a sudden the banks were failing. So they were calling our loans due. They wanted to come, they wanted us to come in and pay these loans off. Um, so that was happening to developers at scale back in 2009 you know, timeframe as these banks were failing. You know, they were calling all the developers and wanting them to pay off their loans uh, to get those assets off their books. So, you know, that was a risk that we just didn't even realize was there at the time uh, that we had to mitigate through. You know, the other thing in terms of recessionary risk and interest rate risk, you know, how do you mitigate that risk is, uh, you know, you need to have the proper and correct reserves so that if something goes down, you can finish the project. You want to be able to raise the capital to, you know, either pay that loan off or refinance it. So you have to think about those things. But the banks are very different now than they were back then. You know, back then there was a lot of, you know, collateral damage that was done because the banks were not working through a lot of these loans. They were just, you know, failing, collapsing and writing stuff off. So it's different now where banks kind of understand now, you know, the, the butterfly effect that can happen and how that can reverberate through the economy. So they're more likely to work things out and work with people, um, you know, in this day and age. But at the end of the day, you have to really review your loan covenants. You've got to understand what triggers what and how, you know, if interest rate environment changes, if recessionary, you know, times happen, if your reserves, you know, change, things like that, uh, the values of your property, you know, a lot of times you're in technical default just because, you know, the, the cash flow on the property changes, the value changes, your reserves change. Those things can put you in technical default, but, you know, lenders don't have a whole lot of appetite for that. But the number one to, way to mitigate risk in any investment, whether it's development or anything else, uh, is, you know, by being an expert. You've got to know your stuff. you got to know what you're doing. There's no guesswork. So I mitigate risk by experience. I just know what I'm doing. I've been through, you know, very difficult recessionary times. I've done a lot of difficult types of projects where I've seen pretty much anything and everything that can go wrong on a project. Uh, and that's just the development business. So you have to have deep pockets, thick skin. You got to be patient. You know, things always cost you more than you think. They always take you longer than you think. And a lot of times you end up making less than you think. But at the end of the day, you have a margin. And as long as you're within those parameters, you know, and you have, uh, you know, educated yourself, you understand the process and you hire and surround yourself with experts, then, you know, that's how you mitigate risk. That the number one way to mitigate risk is to have the right team in place that are experts at what they're doing at every level of the business. You know, going back to your initial question about the feasibility and how that works, you know, determining the highest and best use of a property, how to maximize that property, and then bringing the right team to the table. And the team means uh, everything from, you know, it could be a real estate broker handling transaction for you to the attorneys to, you know, get all the documents and contracts assigned, you know, the right lending partners, the right, you know, uh, equity partners. Not everybody is the right partner for a, for a development deal from an equity standpoint when you're raising capital. You need the right engineers, architects, you know, surveyors, everything, contractors, the whole nine yards. Uh, so, you know, that's really the best way to mitigate risk, you know, in the environment. And even then, anything can and will happen. So that's what's so fun about the development business. You just never know what's going to happen sometimes. So regarding, uh, especially right now, when you're saying that we have to be more conservative in your underwriting, what is the kind of um, minimal return that you're looking for criteria-wise regarding the return of investment, cash on cash returns? especially right now because you're you're between providing the 
the preferred return to your investors and at the same time making the deal work. So right now, what is that? Like based on your different market downturn, what is your criteria now when you're looking on, on first of all, the um, investment itself, if it's only you focus on the whole development from zero to Z or just land development or um, even return? Yeah, so the return is based on what you're offering your investors. So at the end of the day, you're going to have whatever you're offering your investor, whether it's a cash on cash return, 10%, yeah. or if you're giving them an IRR, you know, generally in the business, you, you know, minimums are typically around eight to 10% cash on cash, you know, 18 to 24 IRR in the development business. That's what your investors hmm. uh, are typically looking for, but it's really up to you, you know, to offer your investors whatever you want. So then the deal has to hit that, you know, threshold, and then you need a margin above that for your own self, you know, to be able to make make uh, profits. And, you know, I did a lot of deals using my own money. So I did about a quarter of a billion just using my own cash, my own personal deals didn't have any investors. So for me, I wanted a 30% margin. So my return on cost was about 30%. I didn't so much look at cash on cash, you know, I didn't really look at, you know, a lot of that, because uh, at the end of the day, the, the way I do these projects, I end up with no cash in the deal anyway. So all my returns are infinite. But what I need is I need a 30% margin on cost so that I can mitigate any kind of accidents, mistakes, whatever, overruns, you know, things like that. So that's always served me well. And a lot of times I end up with a bigger spread than that, but that's a minimum. Uh, and depending on the project, you can, you can cut that a little bit down to 20, 25, if you've got something that's very predictable and you're, you know, in and out very quickly, mm-hmm. but on large complex projects, you need a bigger margin so that, you know, you have ample room. And generally that 30% will cover equity, you know, paybacks and, you know, things like that if you're raising capital. So that's, you know, generally how I've done it. But, you know, th- like I said, at the end of the day, my, my returns have been infinite because I always get my cash back through the project. 100%, 100%. Uh, my next question will be about um, the challenges on a breed development and development, which is partnering with a developer. You are a developer, but when you started, I think you were uh, basically partner or been hired not as a partner but uh, but with with a fee so what is the upside or the pros and cons of hiring or partner with a developer or con, con, uh, contractor versus actually just hire him yeah so <clears throat> let's distinguish that so a developer um, is the overall leader visionary, you know, that you bring the team together, get everything, ha- you know, to get everything done. So the developer is the one that finds the, uh, the, the property, the opportunity, gets it under contract and brings everything else to the table. Uh, the contractors, the engineers, the architects, the funding, you know, equity capital and lending, you know, bank debt together. That's the developer, the leader, delegator, motivator, the visionary of the project. And then you have your contractors and you have a general contractor or construction contractor that actually builds the project. Yep. So, you know, that's what I was. I was a general contractor. You know, I hired all the subs. I had some in-house labor and I would do the actual physical on-site building of the project. Uh, and then, you know, there were developers that I was working for where they would find the land, do all that. And they would hire me to build the building. Hmm. Um, so in terms of partnering, there's a lot of different ways to do it. So uh, sometimes, you know, as a builder, I could partner with somebody and I would, I would use my fee as uh, equity in the deal that would help in terms of the debt structure. Uh, so there's ways that you can partner that way. Uh, if you're a developer, you can, you know, partner with a builder. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the best, most cleanest way to do it is if you're a developer, you just hire everybody else. There's no real reason to partner with them unless they're bringing, you know, a lot of something to the table. And, you know, a lot of builders might bring equity to the table or something like that. 
but you know, you can hire that builder as well and they can just perform for you for a fee. So it really just depends on your model, who, who the people are, what it is you're doing, whether it makes sense to partner or whether it makes sense just to hire out. But if you're the builder, the best way to get yourself into a deal is to, you know, potentially partner with somebody, you know, investors or developers where, you know, you have the opportunity. Let's say you're a builder, you don't have the funds, you can't get the loan. So the way you get yourself a deal is you find uh, a good piece of property, you get it locked up, you get it under control, you put everything together to where it's, where it's ready to build. Then you can bring, you know, somebody on like a developer or other equity partners, you know, to help you get everything else that you need in terms of the financing and equity and things like that to get it done. So, you know, that's a couple of different ways you can do it. But for me, I started out by just building, uh, doing the building and remodeling for other investors that were either developing or buying property and they needed it renovated or they needed it built. They would just hire me for a fee to come in and do it. And that's how I learned. I think one of the things that you're, you're mentioning your value or your advantage to bring something to the table. So when you started to do a, a, or scaling your commercial deals, what was your value that you provide on the table to other bigger developer or contractor to partner with you? Locking up good opportunities. So that's the key. You got to find the opportunity. So a lot of people think you need the money. It's not the money. You need a good opportunity. And that works, whether it's an existing asset or, you know, a development project. And it can be vacant land. It can be a building that can be redeveloped, you know, torn down and repurposed or something that you can add on to. So the key is you have to be an expert at understanding the value and the needs in your marketplace so you can identify what's the highest and best use, uh, what's, you know, how do you maximize that use on that property and where's the best spot for that. So for instance, not every piece of land is right for a multifamily building or a storage building or a gas station. Those are very, or a hotel. Those are very different uses that require uh, a lot of times very different locations, you know, and not every market needs those things. So you have to really understand your market, what the needs are, you know, how to maximize those opportunities, but that's really the key. So what I, you know, going back to that land flip, that lot flip that I did, what I learned back then was you need to control the land. You need to control the opportunity. If you have a good opportunity, then it's easier to bring all the pieces together versus you got all the pieces and you have to go find the opportunity. So that's your unique uh, selling proposition. If you're trying to get yourself into deals, find a good opportunity. And a good opportunity is what I described before, something that has a good 30% margin of a return on cost that can pay your investors what they're looking for and still have profit in the deal for you. Uh, and the banks will lend on it. That's what a good opportunity is. I think it's more about also, as you mentioned, to be more exp expert about the county or your region laws so you can maximize the zoning, upsize it, change uh, the number of lots. I hope, uh, I think this is one of the things is make you more uh expert and understand how you can get more um, return on, on, you, on, on this investment. Uh, my, my last question will be uh, about um, your superpower. What is your superpower? So, you know, being a leader, visionary first and foremost, you know, having vision for things, you know, as a builder, and whether that's companies, people, or properties, but, you know, and then being a leader, delegator, motivator, I mean, that's really what you are at the end of the day. You're leading everybody along the way uh, through that process and that transaction. You have to be able to delegate and you have to be able to motivate. So, you know, for me, it was being able to, you know, find really good people and put them in the right position and then let them do their thing. So, uh, you know, I, I have no ego. I have no, you know, I knew that I, I, I knew enough to know that I didn't know anything. 
So I always found people that were better and smarter than me. I put them in a position to succeed and I let them do their thing versus what a lot of people want to do is they want to be the big ego in charge, especially in development. And they don't want to listen to their experts, you know, that they are paying. So for me, I was totally the other way around. I'm a seeker of wisdom in every situation, constantly learning, constantly bettering and educating myself. And the way I built all my companies was I, I found people that were experts at what they did, that were better and smarter than me. I yielded to them, put them in a position, and I let them do the thing that I brought them in to do. Thanks so much for being us, with us today. But my final, final question would be how people can follow your success. Yeah, gregdickerson.com. That's where all my uh, info is. YouTube channel. I've got a you know good YouTube channel out there as well. And uh, yeah, go check it out. Thanks a lot. I hope that you can uh, accept our invite again and to be our guest uh, next time. And we can discuss more about land development. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot.